Our scripture passage is in Romans chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 19 and 20 this morning, the 20th verse of the third chapter of Romans on page 1383 in the, the Bibles in the rack. We've been studying the book of Romans, which has been called the greatest letter ever written. The greatest letter, letter ever written. And next Sunday, a week from today, we will be looking at what commentators have called the greatest paragraph ever written. And so this morning is a precursor to the best stuff ever. Because next week we'll be looking at a paragraph that has changed the world on more than one occasion in the last 2,000 years. For today we're in Romans chapter 3, the 19th verse. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we've been 64 verses in talking about sin and death and the law and how to be right with God and that no one is. And next Sunday, we'll be studying the premier text of Scripture that explains how a person can be in right relationship with you. How to be right with God. Today, we look at a passage that succinctly tells us what doesn't work. How all of man's efforts fail. And yet on account of our sin, every mouth is closed. There is no defense and we as sinners are held accountable. Father, I pray that you'd open up to us the truth of your word. That your Holy Spirit would illumine us and teach us and convict us concerning sin and righteousness. And for this, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. You know, from cover to cover, the Bible tells us there's only two ways to live. There's only two ways that people do live in this world, whether a person is religious or non-religious, whether atheist, pagan, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, whatever. Every person in this world goes about living their life just one of two ways. And this morning in Romans chapter three, in these verses in 19 and 20, we consider the wrong way. The wrong way to live. And then next Sunday, we will be looking at the right way and be looking at the right way as we finish clear through uh, Romans chapter 16. So to see what it means to live the wrong way, I want us to go back to the early 16th century in Central Europe, the late Middle Ages, to the year 1517 to be exact. Why 1517? Because on October 31st of this year, in just nine days, a week from Tuesday, we will mark the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Prior to 1517, very few people knew how to live in right relationship with God, how to be right with God, because they were taught wrongly by the Roman Catholic Church. The masses of people didn't have a Bible and they couldn't read it even if they did. 90% of the people were illiterate in those days. There were very few who did, did get it, such as John Wycliffe or Wycliffe. We have the Wycliffe Bible translators that uh, bear his name today. He translated the Latin Bible into Middle English in the 14th century. He was persecuted severely for teaching heresy, and many of his group called the Lollards were burned at the stake. 
In fact, years later, they dug up John Wycliffe's body and burned his bones just to make the point of how bad they thought he was. <laughs> how stupid is that? Anyway, then there was Jan Hus, the rector at Charles University in Prague, who also translated the New Testament into the Czech language, and he was burned at the stake. The only way that people knew how to be right with God was the wrong way. And it was a way that didn't work at all. And so it enslaved the masses of people in fear and hopelessness, despair. You see, in 1517, the life expectancy in Central Europe was 35 years. How many of you are older than 35? Good job. <laughs> the 14th century, the Hundred Years' War, the Black Death had wiped out half of the European population. Even in 1517, the plague was still wiping out entire towns and villages. In the town of Strasbourg, the plague took the lives of 16,000 of the 25,000 inhabitants. And there were 300 villages in the area that were totally empty on account of the plague. We've seen the devastation from the fires and the hurricanes and those kind of things. You know, town after town after town, nobody living there. People lived in fear. They lived in fear of the plague. They lived in fear of the war. They lived in fear of starvation and, and poverty. One-fourth of the children died in infancy. And the people had absolutely no hope in this world. In fact, half of the mothers died in childbirth. They had no, not in every childbirth, but, <laughs> but eventually in, in childbirth. They had no way of getting out of the despair of life. All of life was controlled by the, the kings, the princes, the nobles, the Holy Roman Emperor and especially by the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church owned almost half of the land in Europe, and the rest was divided up amongst the warring factions of the ruling elite. The only, person, only hope a person had was the hope of heaven, and the Roman Catholic Church alone held the keys to heaven. They alone determined who would go to heaven, who would go to hell, and what the requirements were to get there. The people also believed that they lived in a world filled with demons and devils, which at any moment could drag them down into eternal torment and punishment. And that brings us to a man by the name of Martin Luther. We have seen a bit of the world in which he lived. We need to see something of the man because Martin Luther's quest on how to be right with God, when he finally found the right answer, it changed the world. So I want to see the first part of Martin Luther's life. How he went about trying to be right with God and why he felt so guilty and fearful no matter what he tried to do. Luther is a great example. If anybody could have been right with God by living according to the law and the dictates of the church, it would have been Luther. Like everybody else in medieval Christendom, Martin Luther had been brought up in the fear of God. And I'm not talking about the awe of God to be in terror of God, fear of death, fear of judgment, fear of hell. Then because the surest way to gain heaven, it was thought, was to become a monk. That's what Martin Luther did. At one time, Luther had almost been killed in a thunderstorm. And like most people in the Middle Ages, Luther saw acts of nature as acts of an angry God. The thunderstorm, he thought, was the judgment of God upon his soul. The lightning struck around him. It was shattering trees. He felt the grip of demons and hell grabbing at his soul. And he cried out to St. Anne. Of course, we don't believe in saints, but St. Anne was supposedly the mother of Mary, the mother of Jesus. He promised that if his life was spared, 
he had become a monk. He didn't want to do that, but he'd made a promise to God. So in 1505, at the age of 21, after he already had a law degree and, and uh, had been educated, he entered the Augustinian cloister at Erfurt in Germany, where he prayed and fasted sometimes for days on end. Other monks in the, the monastery remarked that you could see his bones through his skin. He was uh, so... And he adopted other extreme austerities, including self-flagellation, you know, where they'd whip themselves over, over and over. And to show his sincerity, he slept out in the snow without a blanket. And the other monks would have to drag him back inside to save his life. He confessed his sins three or four times a day, sometimes for six hours at a time. He'd wear out the priest in hearing his confession because some of them didn't think that what it was he was saying was a sin at all. Luther memorized large portions of scripture. He committed the entire book of Psalms to memory. And plus, he committed large portions of, of the scriptures to memory. To try to get Luther's mind off his sin and his guilt for a year, Luther was excused from the physical labor in the monastery. And they told him to do nothing but study the scriptures for an entire year. Talk about the providence of God. You can see God working through this as you, as you look at it. This is a time when even the vast majority of the priests were illiterate. Even the priests in doing the mass, they only parroted in Latin what they had been taught to say. They had, most of them had no idea what the words actually meant. They knew nothing of the word of God. People knew nothing of the word of God. They only knew what the church had taught them and told them. And the church was totally greedy and corrupt. And Luther wrote, I was a good monk. If ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, it was I. I. I love that word, monkery. Luther probed every resource of contemporary Catholicism for assuaging the anguish of a spirit alienated from God. Absolution, confession, indulgences, penance, the mass, the prayers, and, and all those things. But nothing, nothing pacified it his tormented conscience until he was appointed professor of Bible at Wittenberg University. At first, he was angry with God, he later confessed, because God seemed to him more of a terrifying judge than a merciful savior. And where might he find a gracious God? Why hadn't he become right with God? He had beat his flesh into submission. He'd done all the good works. He confessed all of his sins. Why hadn't he merited God's favor? Even the head of the monastery, or monastery had told Luther, you, you've done more than enough. Lighten up, man, if that's the words we could use. But Luther was still in anguish. He was burdened by sin and guilt. He was fearful of an angry, vindictive God who was going to punish him for all eternity. He was a tortured, tortured soul. But as Luther studied and taught the letter to the Romans at the university, God began to open Luther's heart to the truth of his word. What could Paul mean, Luther wondered, in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, when he stated that the righteousness of God was revealed in the gospel? What did Paul mean in Romans chapter 3, verse 22, that we'll look at next week, that the righteousness of God is revealed through faith in Jesus Christ? Luther had spent his life trying to get good enough to merit God's favor and assuage God's anger. And Luther tells us how his dilemma was resolved. He wrote, I greatly long to understand Paul's letter to the Romans and nothing stood to the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. 
Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and acting righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. Two years later, on October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago, this October 31st, Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. The chapel doors in those days aren't like our doors. They were really the community bulletin board. If you wanted the word to get around about something, you posted it on the church doors because in those days, people were coming and going to church all the time. Now, due to the invention of the printing press by that time, within two weeks of the posting, Luther's students had circulated the 95 Theses into all of Germany. And within weeks, it went into all Europe. We would say today it went viral. This is the first thing to ever go viral, ever. And it sparked the Protestant Reformation, the greatest revival in Christian history. In Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, we see why of all Luther's, why all of Luther's great efforts didn't work for him. Why he wasn't right with God, and we'll see why self-effort doesn't work for anyone. And why it doesn't work today or any time until they, like Luther, discover the great truth of Romans, the just shall live by faith. So this morning we look at the wrong way to live. The question that Jews and religious people would have had in Paul's day is when Paul wrote to the epistle, wrote the epistle to the Romans was, as Paul talks about the law and how you can't become righteous keeping the law. Well, why did God give the law to begin with anyway? Or another way to put it, why did he give the Old Testament to begin with? If no one can be in right standing before God by trying to live by it, why, why did God give it? You know, and that, that's really a good question because, in fact, unlike Martin Luther and very few other people who, was a, who were great exceptions, most people feel like they're basically good. They're good people. And Paul has already shown us from Scripture, we saw this last week, that there is none that understands, there is none that seeks for God, there is none that does good, not even one. Incidentally, Luther wasn't seeking for God. No one seeks for God. He was seeking how he himself could get out from under the anger of, of a God. So why did God give the law to begin with, especially since no one can live up to it? And since no one, not a single person, will be right with God or justified in his sight by the works of the law. So we must understand something of the law before we see what, what Paul says about it in Romans chapter 3. We must first of all understand that God gave the law to reveal his standard of absolute righteousness. God gave the law to reveal his standard of absolute righteousness. Now, when you tell people that they have sinned against a holy God, and of course, we saw last week, that's part of the gospel. We are called as the church to tell people if they've sinned against a holy God. You tell people that, you often hear, well, God knows that I've done the best that I could with what he gave me. They like to add that. God knows I've done the best that I could. Or I believe in the Ten Commandments, or I try to keep the golden rule. I try to live by the Sermon on the Mount. They seem that if 
seem to think that if you try to do your best, even if you fail thousands of times, God will let you off on judgment day. He'll reward your efforts. He won't penalize your failures. Besides, if he demanded perfection, then no one could be saved. Well, Paul's been making that case for <laughs> 64 verses. But James chapter 2, verse 10 points out, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Stumble in one point, you become guilty of all. We don't like to admit this, but if we think about it, we have to admit it. Think of it this way. If a man stole your credit card and he used it to buy thousands and thousands of dollars of purchases, he is guilty of stealing. But what would you think when he came to trial and he came before the judge and said, but judge, I didn't steal his house. I didn't burn or, or his car. I, did, I didn't steal his car, burn down his house. I didn't lie to him. I didn't kidnap his kids. And besides, I try to live by the golden rule. I try to live the best that I can. All that is irrelevant to the main issue. Did you steal his credit card and use it to buy thousands of dollars of goods? If so, he is guilty in spite of, spite of all the other bad things he did not do. Did you get that? He's guilty in spite of all the bad things he did not do. And he's guilty in spite of all the good things that he may be doing. He's still a lawbreaker. So let's look for a moment at the absolute righteousness of God's law. The two great commandments sum up God's absolute standard. Turn back to the, the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 22, beginning at the 36th verse, page 1220, 22nd chapter of Matthew, beginning at verse 36. In this 22nd chapter of Matthew, a lawyer has asked Jesus a question in order to, to test him. Now, why is he testing? He wanted to see if Jesus had the right answer. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Somebody's going to test the Lord Jesus, see if Jesus has an answer he agrees with. And, and lawyers in those days were experts in the law of God, the Torah. If you had a question about God's law, you went to, to the lawyers. Verse 36, during this discussion, the lawyer asked, teacher, what is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord with Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the set great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, what? Depend the whole law and the prophets. Everything else in the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets was their way of saying the entire Old Testament. Everything is, the entire Old Testament is supplemental to these two commandments. Now, who could possibly claim even coming close to keeping the first great commandment. Have you from your earliest memory always and consistently loved God completely with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all day long, every day? This would mean that you've always obeyed him because if you don't obey him, you don't love him. That was Jesus who said that. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will make myself known to him. Loving God would also mean that he's always been the center of our waking thoughts. He's, he's always been at the center of every decision that we have ever made. His glory has been your supreme desire, your aim, and whatever you think and say and do, you begin every day by worshiping him. You love his word more than food. You meditated on it day and night. Who in his right mind can say, well, you just described me. 
Nope, we've all fallen. We don't fare any better on the second great commandment to love our neighbor just as much as in fact we love ourselves. Did you always share your toddlers or your toys joyfully as a toddler? <laughs> no. In school, did you always put others ahead of you? Have you given generously and sacrificially to help the needy? Have you always put, okay, this guy, this, this one's for us guys. Have you always put your mate's needs in front of your own? Because that's how Jesus said we're to love our wives. Husbands, love your wives how? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We are to love our wives sacrificially. Have you always treated your children with love and kindness, even when they were disobedient? Hmm. <laughs> At work, did you rejoice when your co-worker got the promotion that you thought you deserved? Again, who in his right mind could say, well, I just described me. Well, what about the Ten Commandments? People try to live by the Ten Commandments. Well, the Ten Commandments elaborate on the two great commandments. Surveys have shown that even though many people say they try to live by the Ten Commandments, nobody can name them all. <laughs> nobody can name them all. How about the Fourth Commandment? Let's start with that one. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, there's a debate about whether Christians under the New Covenant are under the Ten Commandments, and especially about how the Sabbath command applies to believers in Jesus. But did you know that all of the Ten Commandments, except for the Sabbath command, can be found in the New Testament? So even if we say, I'm free to watch the Chiefs game this afternoon, they're not playing this afternoon, but I'd like to watch them this afternoon. I, I can watch a football game on Sunday afternoon. Have you perfectly kept the first three commandments? Yes, I've never had any other gods before the Lord or made or worshipped any idols. <laughs> really? You've never usurped God's rightful lordship over your life? You've never put your money or possessions or some pastime ahead of the place that belongs to God alone? And I didn't mention the third command yet, taking the name, Lord's name in vain. Have you never carelessly said, oh my God, or oh Jesus? Most of us have said far worse in a moment of anger. Okay, we only have six commandments to go, but for the sake of time, we'll yield to the prosecution on those matters. But someone might say, but I'm a Christian. I tried to follow Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. I've heard that before. Really? If so, you jump, just jump from the frying pan into the fire. Because the Sermon on the Mount reveals that God judges us on the heart level, not just on external obedience. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was the one that brought up the command about murder. Well, the self-righteous Pharisees were congratulating themselves that they had never actually killed anyone. Jesus nailed them and us by saying that if you've ever been angry with your brother, you're guilty of murder in God's sight and deserving of a fiery hell. He did the same thing regarding the seventh commandment against adultery. He said, if you ever lusted in your heart after a woman, you're guilty of adultery. And Jesus sums up the requirements of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So how can anyone claim I keep the Sermon on the Mount? It may be a noble goal, but who can claim that they've done it perfectly? If you say that you have done that, then you just broke the commandment about lying. And so Paul's point is that God's law reveals the standard of his absolute righteousness. 
And as a result, God's law convicts us all of our true moral guilt before him. So turn once again to Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Third chapter of Romans, verse 19. We've been at this for about 15, 16, 20 minutes, and we're finally getting back to our text. <laughs> Romans chapter 3, the 19th verse. We see three things about the law in these two verses. First of all, the law closes every mouth. Second, the law makes us all accountable to God. And thirdly, keeping the law cannot be the way to justification. In other words, keeping the law is not the way that we're made right with God. Verse 19 again. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. First of all, the law closes every mouth so that every mouth may be closed, says Paul. The picture here, and, and Paul is using the language of the courtroom. The picture of, is of an accused person standing for the judge to present his case. But in this case, the judge is the sovereign, holy God, creator of heaven and earth. And here comes the proud atheist. He has written books arguing that God does not exist or he's a delusion or if there is a God, he's not all that great, that he's just a man-made invention of man's mind. What will he say when he stands before the blinding glory of a holy God? Nothing. His mouth will be stopped. He has no more arguments. Or here's the person who often complained about how unfair God is. If he were a God of love and power, he'd now allow all the suffering that we see in this world. If I were God, they'd kind of think in their mind, I'd sure run the universe differently than he would. It'd sure be a better place to live. And he stands before the Almighty. What does he say? Nothing. He has no defense. Even godly men and women have their down times when they question God. Satan allowed, or God allowed Satan to attack the righteous Job by taking all his possessions, killing his ten children, and then covering his body with painful boils. Job and his friends wanted to argue their case before God that he was being treated or dealt with unfairly. But when God appears and gave Job a glimpse of his power and his wisdom, Job's response was what? To slap his hand over his mouth to be silent and to repent in dust and ashes. We see the same thing with Isaiah, Habakkuk, and the Apostle John. They were silenced, flat on their faces before a living God when they got a glimpse of the glory of God. In fact, let's turn back to, to Habakkuk. When's the last time you've been in Habakkuk in your Bible, in the Old Testament? There's all these put together. Yeah, it's right before Zephaniah. That helped. Uh, right after Nahum, Micah's right before that. You, you kind of get in the idea. It's time to, to look at the table of contents in your Bible. And I didn't look up what it was in the Bible in the rack this morning. Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. Habakkuk has been complaining to high heaven, to God, because things are so bad in, in Israel, 
There's enemies coming against them. The people are not living according to God. They are sinning. And basically Habakkuk is saying, God, why don't you come down and fix this thing? I know you can fix it. God, you know, we try to build a little faith. God, you can really do this if you just would do it my way, you know, kind of thing. God, come down and fix this. So when God did show up, we have Habakkuk's response in verse 16 of Habakkuk 3. He said, I heard and my inward parts trembled. <sighs> Shiver up his spine. At the sound, my lips quivered. You ever seen that in a little kid when they're in trouble? You know, bottom lip going like crazy. I still do that once in a while. That's really weird. <laughs> Decay enters my bones. I'm sick inside. I just feel sick. And in my place, I tremble. Because I wait quietly for the day of distress. When Habakkuk got a glimpse of God's glory and God came, that's how he felt. And the point is this. When you stand for judgment before the throne of God, you won't have anything to say. Every mouth will be closed. You know, the same thing is true today. If we're still trying to rationalize our own sin, if we're still trying to find excuses for why we do and what we think and what we said and what we do, finding excuses, blaming others, blaming our circumstances. Well, you just don't know what the circumstances were. And that's why I did that. Blaming the way you were born or the way you were made, blaming your parents, blaming your teachers, blaming the way you were raised, blaming your boss, blaming anyone but yourself. Someone has said in this context, you are not a Christian until you have been made speechless. Hmm. How do you know whether you are a Christian or not? This person asked. It's that when you stop talking. The next thing we see about the law is the law makes us all accountable to God. In the verse nine of, of Romans chapter 19 in the verse 19, Romans chapter three. All the world may become accountable to God. Every mouth is closed. All the world accountable to God. The word, the word accountable is a legal term that only occurs here in the New Testament. It means that we are guilty and liable for punishment. It, it's not that we are accountable in a human court here. We are accountable to God himself. God, who knows every evil thought that we've entertained, he knows every secret sin that we've committed. All things are open and bare before him. We have broken his holy law, not just a few times, but thousands and thousands of times. How could we possibly hope that the charges would be dropped? And then finally, keeping the law cannot be the way to justification. Verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul has already driven home the point that, that no one will be made right with God by the keeping of the works of the law. Because God's standard is what? Perfection. Perfection. And no one can keep it perfectly except Jesus Christ was the only one in human flesh who kept it perfectly. No one can be brought into a right standing with God on the basis of what the law requires or what religious religion dictates. Martin Luther couldn't do it. If he couldn't do it, nobody else in the world can do it. Of course, nobody can do it. 
So why did God give the law in the first place? We're back to that initial question. If nobody can live up to it, why did God give it to us? End of verse 20. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law makes a person conscious of sin. It reveals that we're unable to live up to the righteous requirements of a holy God. The law encourages effort, but all human effort falls short of the divine standard. What is the purpose of the law to bring the knowledge of sin? You know, as an architect, I can draw a pretty straight line. I really can. I can do it on paper. I can do it, you know, after years of practicing and learning a few tricks, I can draw a good straight line. And one of the tricks is not as you're drawing the line, don't look at your pencil in your hand, because if you do that, you're going to go all over the place. The point is, look at where you want the line to end up and then just move your pencil to that to that line. You simply move your pencil to the end point. Always look at where you want the line to end up and especially helpful to put a dot or a mark where you want the line to end. The purpose of the law is a guide, a conduct. This is where we want to be. This is how we, we get there. This is where it's supposed to end. The problem is when I take my metal straight edge and I think my line's pretty good and I lay my straight ed edge down on it, it, you know, sometimes there's great variation. You know, I have a tendency to, this is an exaggeration, to loop the line <laughs> over. So it's always got a bow in it or it's got a little jag in it that, you know, one of the things that we do architectural sketching is that we put the little jagged lines and overlapping the lines on perfect. And everybody goes, wow, that's really a cool way to do that. Well, it's the only way in my human flesh I can do it. So I'm glad you, you like that. But, uh, you know, there's a Greek word for the mark, a word that's translated sin. The Greek word is hamartia, which means missing the mark. It's an archery term. The archer takes, he pulls the bow back, the bowstring back, and he lets the arrow fly. If he misses the mark, it's armatia. Sin is missing the mark. Sin is missing the mark. God's standard is perfection, and I miss it every time. And I think I'm pretty good. <laughs> but that's the problem. We still miss the mark. So what's the point? The point is this. Our utter failure to keep God's law should drive us to the gospel for salvation. For 64 verses, that's what Paul has been saying. Whether you're Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, good guy, moral guy, bad guy, evil guy, whatever it is, whether you know about the law or not, you can't, you can't keep it. And that's when we get to the greatest news of all. Even though we're all guilty of breaking God's law, he offers a pardon to those who trust in Jesus in a substitutionary death on the cross. Back to the only way, two ways to live. For a thousand years in those days that we call medieval uh, times, the Middle Ages, they used to be called the Dark Ages. And there was a reason for that. Now they call it uh, the, the, the Middle Ages. People lived in, in darkness. They didn't know very few of them about their Savior. And there came to be a phrase about the Reformation. 
that uh, became the theme, and it was this, after darkness, light. If you look in your Bible between verse 20 and 21 of Romans chapter 3, right after darkness, light. Because now in verse 21 are the two best words in the book of Romans. But now. But now. After darkness, light. And we're going to have to leave it there. <laughs> because as you give this thought, you know, I would encourage you, because I put in the, the bulletin this morning, uh, there's uh, five solas, which means only. You know, ask the question, what does the Protestant Reformation mean to us as Grace Baptist Church today? And I, I'd encourage you to read those, but I'd also encourage you to, to look at God's word and take those two words in verse 21 of Romans chapter 3, but now, and uh, read the rest of that chapter. Meditate it on this week. The lights are going to start to go off. <laughs> it's a wonderful passage. It's the greatest paragraph ever written after darkness comes light shall we pray father i think of how you work and who would have thought when we started the book of romans 17 weeks ago 16 weeks ago something like that we're just finishing up getting finish up chapter three and we've been at it for for three, three and a half months already, Lord. But uh, with next Sunday being the recognition of the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, just to think that we would be in these particular verses in Romans chapter three, we, we give you thanks. Not because we particularly celebrate the Reformation and, and all of that, because we celebrate what your word says to us, Lord, and this is timely. Timely for us as a church, timely for us as a nation, timely for us as we pr preach and give the gospel to people who are trying to work it out their own way. And Father, for this we give you thanks. In Jesus' name.